With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. I had to come face to face with the fact that this wasn't going to be something that I was going to like bounce back from in a weekend. I remember asking myself like very dramatically at the time, but I remember asking myself, you know, like, what do you, what do you do with a writer that can't write? Who am I if I can't write or if I can't do this work that I had come to associate my identity with? And that was when I was like, wow, I did not realize how much I had associated who I am with what I do. And it wasn't that I write as an activity, it was that I am a writer. That's when I was like, okay, I understand now how we cannot let our self-worth be tied up in the work that we do. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beat. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, with a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> This is Finding Power. I'm Samuel Donner, and today we'll be talking with digital anthropologist and author Rahaf Harfouch. Having immigrated from Syria as a young child, Rahaf found herself swept into North America's intense culture of success. Working tirelessly, she eventually found herself so unwell that her doctor told her to stop everything immediately a prescription that created an entirely new set of demons. Now, using her own experience as a tool, Rahaf's able to teach others about creativity, stress management, and discovering the balance between your occupation and identity. Today, she's the author of the book Hustle and Float, Reclaim Your Creativity and Thrive in a World Obsessed with Work, which discusses the relationship between professionals and technology in the modern workplace. So while Rahaf's now able to provide insight for others, her own journey has been defined by the challenges she encountered. It's a riveting story of self-discovery and learning. So stick with me as we step into Rahaf's childhood years, beginning with her family's move from Damascus to Toronto. How did your parents talk to you about that move? And how did you like incorporate that into your identity growing up? You know, it's really funny because as a child, you don't really understand very much. Like I remember knowing that we were going on a plane. I remember the plane ride. I remember having never seen snow before. Like you remember all these things, but then there were things that I also, aspects of it that I guess my 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 child brain could not compute. And I was confused as to why I would speak to my teachers when I was in like kindergarten and my teachers couldn't understand me because I was speaking Arabic to them. And I was very confused as to why, how was it that they couldn't understand? My parents did everything they could to try to make it as smooth as transition as possible. But, you know, we left our culture. I had a lot of family there um, and they just always uh, told us that this was for the future, for future opportunities, for us to be able to live the types of lives that we wanted to lead. 
I'm so grateful that they took that risk. I just keep wondering, you know, how how they did it because I really don't think I could have done the same thing not with three little kids, right? My my parents left everything that they knew and took a massive leap to a country. My mother did not speak English. Um, you know, my father did not have a job waiting. We just had some savings and that was it. Off we went and that type of sacrifice, I'll tell you what that de- does to your identity is I'm sure many immigrants uh, children can relate you grow up being very, very aware of the price of what your parents had to pay for you to get things that many other people take for granted. I feel like there's a pressure then because of that, like a pressure to succeed because of how much was sacrificed. Oh man, of course. And I mean, that contrib- that was part of the cultural narrative that contributed to my own burnout story was this feeling like my parents sacrificed so much um, that I needed to not let that sacrifice go to waste. And that if I stopped and if I wasn't constantly trying to take advantage of every opportunity, you know, that it would somehow be a sign of disrespect in terms of all of the things that my parents had, you know, risked and sacrificed and and lost for us. As Rahaf began to acclimate to her new life in Canada, the immense sacrifice her parents made became more and more apparent. They were, after all, young parents leaving the familiarity of their homeland for a country vastly different from their own. But the uncertainty of moving overseas was just one piece to consider. Home had become a place of uncertainty too. Leading up to Rahaf's departure, Syria faced years of conflict. 1976 to 1982 saw the Islamist uprising with members of the Muslim Brotherhood revolting against Syria's secular government. 1989, the year Rahaf's family left, was the year of Lebanon's War of Liberation, the final show of force against the Syrian occupation. It was a time of unrest, and Canada provided hope for a life free of conflict. But starting a new life in Toronto posed its own challenges. Rahaf's family now had to adapt to a different community, one that was going through one of its own periods of stress. Towards the end of 1989, Canada was entering one of the worst economic recessions in the country's history. Inflation had been growing for the last 20 years, and towards the end of 1992, unemployment reached a staggering 12.1%, which meant finding a job would have been difficult for Rahaf's parents. But they made it work, and as the years went on, Rahaf wanted nothing more than to prove to her parents that their sacrifice would mean something. With this, she resolved to attack her professional career relentlessly. So how were you deciding or starting to really work and like achieve? My dad would always say, like, we came over to Canada, we gave you everything that we could, but the rest was sort of up to you. It was very much about like, I started working when I was like, 15 years old, I worked at McDonald's. That was my first like real quote unquote job. Before that, I was babysitting and dog walking and doing all the things. And it was very early on this idea that, uh, you know, I really had to work in order to to live and survive. Right. And that that stayed throughout my entire life. Like there was no safety net. So if I wanted to go away for university, which I did, I had to work during the summer to save up. I had to take out loans. I had to do all of these things. 
in hindsight, with the burnout research, you start to realize that that also creates this just like never ending pressure of needing to constantly move and work and earn and do all of these things in order to take advantage of certain opportunities that come your way. Rahaf was entering a competitive environment. College admissions were becoming more and more cutthroat, and Rahaf's major business was and is the most popular major chosen by college students in North America today. The stress of school was high, but following her father's advice towards a business background afforded Rahaf the flexibility to look outside the box at emerging industries. And it gave her the confidence to pursue a career in the burgeoning field of tech and digital media. It was a gamble, but Rahaf was poised to find success. So much so that she found herself in an occupational whirlwind. It was a world filled with opportunity she couldn't afford to pass up. Once I embraced that, I was not going to have a linear path. Um, And once I accepted the fact that I was going to have to figure it out, um, I sort of developed this thing where certain opportunities that seemed completely unrelated to each other would drop in my path. And I just developed this, this attitude of saying yes. So out of school, I got hired to work uh, for a technology think tank and I was writing research. I said yes to that. A couple of years after that, I had through a series of circumstances an opportunity to write my first book in 2009. Then I had a speaker's agency come and call. They said, do you want to start speaking about this? So I started speaking. And then one of those speaking opportunities was actually I was invited to Geneva to uh, give a presentation at the World Economic Forum. So I did that and then was offered a job there. Wait, on that progression, like, did you feel like you were building? Like, did it feel like it was building towards someone or did it, or something? Or did it feel like you were ping-ponging in these different directions, like in the moment? I felt like I was riding like a roller coaster that I had no idea what would happen. Again, in hindsight now, having built my business and having written multiple books, I can look back and I can say, well, the thread is so obvious in hindsight. I'm obviously interested in human potential and technology and creativity. But in the moment when I was you know, working at the World Economic Forum in Geneva or when I was writing a book or when I was doing something else, it really felt like interesting opportunities. But I would look at other friends that had much more clearly delineated paths and I would feel very envious that they seemed to know exactly what the next five steps would be when sometimes I just felt like I was just living by whims. I also learned that I had to be quite open to a certain type of not knowing, which is really hard. I had all these opportunities and what ended up happening was I had just finished writing uh, my second book and I felt this pressure because I didn't have a next thing lined up. I was tired. We'd just done a full book tour and yet I was just like, what's next? What's next? What's the next opportunity? What's the next project going to be? And for once in my life, the not knowing seemed to really set me off. And I started saying yes to too many projects. And I overextended on top of a book tour, on top of having spent the last two years writing this book, on top of speaking, on top of running my own business. Like it was just too much. And I started being less creative. I started feeling more tired. I started needing more and more sleep. I started getting irritable. Uh, My hair started falling out. That was the real like low of lows when my like hair, clumps of my hair started falling out. What did your schedule look like at this point? 
I would wake up. I was never an early riser. I'm a night owl. So I would go the other way, but I would like wake up at like nine. And then it would just be like emails and calls. And I would be like business development calls. I'd be drumming up business. I'd say yes to projects. Uh, Then I would be like, oh, I should start writing something else. And then I'd go speak because I was speaking about the decoded company. So I might jump on a plane um, and then I'd come back. And then like I was teaching at that time as well. It was just like, honestly, it was just a mess. And there was no rhyme or reason to it. There was no intentionality to it. There was no um, curation of my own time. Everything was urgent. Everything was a priority. Everything was draining. And there came a point where I just didn't have anything more left to give to anything. There was like a very clear day when I woke up and it felt like my brain was really fuzzy. And I just couldn't think for like weeks. Like the only way to explain it would be like, imagine you're like reaching for something and the thing that you're reaching for isn't there. That was when I was like, oh man, I think I broke my brain. Went to the doctor and was like, did I do irreversible damage? And he was like, you are burnt out and you need to stop everything that you're doing. Everything came to a standstill. Rahoff was drowning in a sea of work that she once could tread, but she had overworked herself to such a point that she was unable to do anything at all. And this isn't something you can just sleep off. This was different. And Rahoff wasn't alone. A recent study by Deloitte found that 77% of respondents experience burnout in their current job. Among millennials like Rahoff, 84% of respondents experience burnout. And this isn't a new problem. The term burnout was actually coined in 1974 by American psychologist Herbert Freudenberger. It has many of the same symptoms as clinical depression, including lack of energy, feeling of worthlessness, trouble concentrating, loss of interest in activities that used to bring you joy. Burnout traps you in a self-perpetuating cycle. Even though Rahaf wasn't alone in this, she would have to find her own way out of this cycle. In many ways, Rahaf's debilitating depression broke her down. It drained her energy, stole her inspiration, and eroded her confidence leaving her drowning in guilt. However, when you're broken down, the only thing left to do is rebuild and try to figure out what in the world you're going to do next. Burnout isn't just, oh, you're tired. Like burnout makes you incapable of delivering on things that you have promised uh, to clients. And that was a really hard conversation. Luckily, I had very understanding clients, but I said, look, like, I'm really sorry, but I am having a health health issue. Um, I'm not going to be able to meet these deadlines. And that felt awful. It felt like I was a failure. It felt like I was letting down my client. It felt, I felt really dumb. I felt like, why couldn't I keep it together? Why didn't I know better? Why couldn't I have just sucked it up and kept working? You know, it was just like the whole thing. It ends up you feeling terrible about feeling terrible, which ends up doubling your your anxiety about the whole thing. So now I've been like dropped a lot of these projects. How did you start to even reevaluate your life or take a break? Like, did you even know what that looked like after working for so long? No. Um, what happened in the in the sort of summary version, let's say. I had to come face to face with the fact that this wasn't going to be something that I was going to like bounce back from in a weekend. Like I wasn't just going to sleep for 12 hours for two days and bounce back the way that I had in the past. 
There's no crick remedy. Yeah. So like, no. So A, no. B, my brain literally, like legitimately was not working the way that it was supposed to. Um, I couldn't write. I couldn't research. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't focus. I couldn't even like watch TV. Like I just sat on my couch or lay in my bed. Like I just could not do anything. And there was a very distinct point in time, like the breakthrough moment was when I remember asking myself, like very dramatically at the time, but I remember asking myself, you know, like, what do you do with a writer that can't write? Who am I if I can't write or if I can't, um, you know, do this work that I had come to associate my identity with? And that was when I was like, wow, I did not realize how much I had associated who I am with what I do. And it wasn't that I write as an activity. It was that I am a writer. And if you look at like LinkedIn or or the way you write your bios or the way we talk about ourselves, right? We say we're half is a digital anthropologist or we're half is a, a writer or whatever. And I had to come face to face with this idea that who was I if none of those things were true anymore? Like basically all I had was we're half is. And that turned out to be the starting point because when I started recognizing that who I was without all of the titles and verbs and all of the things that I was supposed to be, that it, that I am, period, as a complete sentence, that actually was really, really liberating. But that's when I was like, okay, I understand now how we cannot let our self-worth be tied up in the work that we do. How did you come to that realization? Because that seems like a a hard realization to even start to come to. It was just depression. For real, it was just melodrama. It was like, okay, well, my brain's broken and I don't know when I'm going to be able to write again. And I have to make peace. This This was the dramatic thought. I might have to make peace with the fact that I might never write again. That creative voice that whispers nonstop ideas in my head that tells me about stories and books and articles and jobs and all the things I want to do, the voice that's constantly really excited about everything, that voice went away and it went away for so long that there came a point where I had to face the possibility that it might not come back. And I had to be like, I can either be okay with this or I can just let it spin me further into depression. But once I started making my peace with the fact that, again, I wasn't this identity, this of titles, then things started to get better because I stopped berating myself for not feeling well. I stopped feeling guilty for needing to rest. I stopped associating my self-worth with my writing. I stopped caring so much what other people thought about my professional outwardly success. Like all of that just didn't seem important. As many people will tell you who've had health issues, when your health is compromised, like everything shifts into super hyper-focus and none of the stuff that you thought was important was important. Who cares about that LinkedIn endorsement? Who cares, like who cares about any of those things? If you don't feel like you yourself are worthy as a human being, completely a part of LinkedIn titles and endorsements and professional, you know, prizes and recognition. Rahaf's right. We're all hung up on the numbers. We equate success with rank, popularity, and our appearance. We push aside our passions, health, and priorities for work. It's all become so toxic that it's severely impacting our mental health. This mentality is a hidden beast in many professional circles. This ingrained doctrine tells us that we have to put aside everything and only focus on work to be the best. But Rahaf is challenging that. She wants to break that mentality. Is burnout literally just like 
your body shutting down so you can reprioritize like how you could get ahead of that without jeopardizing your health? Well, burnout was like wearing glasses, sunglasses, and then like taking them off and realizing that the reason we were all burning out was because we had been sold a system and we had been sold a set of values and we'd been sold a formula for success. And we had been sold this entire um, fantasy about what success looks like, who gets to be successful. And all of that was actually a lie because it's not working. And that was a really, really big shock for me because so many of us have grown up with these ingrained ideas in our belief system, in what I call our OS, right? Like in our operating systems, we don't question them. They're just foundational to how we see the world. This idea that I can like work my way to success. And it's an idea that is literally repeated back at us in movies and articles and in, in everything. And I realized very quickly that that system was so broken and yet we were so attached emotionally to that system that it was making us all sick. And burnout has become, according to the World Health Organization in 2019, it has become a global workplace hazard. That to me says the system is failing most of us on a very large level. And the trick is not to get to rock bottom and need to have like a health catastrophe in order for you to recognize this. The trick is, is to reprioritize how you see your own creativity, how you see your own high performance, and to re reframe that within a system that makes sense for you. And so like, what were your answers to some of those questions? What was your process? I mean, my process was over months and months, and I'm a really big fan of The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron and had picked up the habit on and off of asking myself these types of questions. And then I started reading about that. And I, and I really started with when did productivity become so important? Where did the idea that hard work equals success comes from? Where did my idea of what success looks like come from? And so that was a very natural basis for me to just start asking myself self-reflective questions like, you know, what did my parents teach me about work ethic? What am I most proud of? Like there are all these lists of questions. And I think it's ironic, but that's the type of hard work that really matters, right? You sitting down and unraveling some of your work baggage and some of your self-limiting beliefs and some of your psychological setbacks, like that is really hard work. And yet we don't praise that work. We praise the person that like sits at their computer for 16 hours a day because wow, they're really hustling. Yeah. It's like a mismatch of value. Like how do you encourage people to value that time spent thinking because like, I guess like to the outside person, it, it looks like nothingness or it looks like, like a waste of time, but like internally, it's one of the most important things you can do. So like, how do you shift the, the narrative to actually value that time? Let me ask you something. Can you think of a time when you were going to make like a large purchase of some sort? Can you, can you picture a time when you were going to like purchase a product? Yes. Okay. Do you remember um, if you did any research about that product, like comparison shopping? Oh, crap ton. I'm, I'm thinking about the Mac that I am using today, but bought in college. So how much research did you do in terms of like getting to know the specs of that Mac? Price shopping, analyzing it, reading reviews, a ton, right? We all do it. 
Have you ever done any sort of like self-assessment on your own creative processes? Probably not as much as I did on the computer. (laughs) (laughs) That's the point. We have this incredible resource. It's our creativity. Our creativity powers everything. And yet most people don't understand how their creativity works. They don't understand the cycle of creativity. They don't understand that intentional recovery is a part of the cycle, that you can't have high performance without intentional recovery. How long can you work before you need a break in terms of like doing a highly cognitive task? If there's one thing that people listening can try this week, it would be this. It would be take out your phone and then the next time you have to do a highly cognitive task, just keep an eye on that clock because I found out that there are huge variability between the amount of time that people work on their cycles. It's amazing, but because we, we're we constantly told you need to work nonstop. You need, like I always thought, oh, I needed to write for hours. And I learned after timing myself a couple of times that after 90 minutes, max, I need like an hour break. Well, how do you measure that when you are sitting down and you're saying like, okay, after 90 minutes, I'm not as productive. Like, how do you know? Like, what are you, what are you looking at? I'm looking at flow because everybody who is a creative, who does strategic work, you know, when you're in the zone and then what starts to happen is it just doesn't feel as good you, maybe you hit a block and then um, you stop. I time myself multiple times over weeks and weeks and weeks. And, you know, and that's how I got the general average of that sweet spot of anywhere between say like you know, an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and 40 minutes. And you know, when you're out of flow, you know, when like the magic is over, I just made a little note of the time. And then what gets really interesting is once you understand how much your peak performance is, how much intentional recovery you need, once you understand those numbers about yourself, then you can plan your day like a ninja, right? Then you're planning your day around your optimal creative performance, including rest and recovery. You're not jamming your creativity into systems that don't account for intentional recovery and that just burn you out. And no one can give you that system. You can build that system for yourself. You're the only one that can build the system for yourself. I can give you the performance cycle. I can tell you the steps and I can tell you how to time it. But if you don't time it, it's not going to do anything for you. But that's exactly what everyone wants. Something that will do the gritty work for us. Consumers will hurl their time and resources into whatever trending supplement, diet, morning routine, what have you, promises to magically give them optimal health and happiness. And I mean hurl. At the moment, the global health and wellness industry is worth a whopping $4.5 trillion. And yet, the most crucial elements of wellness are much more complex than any one product can cure. According to the National Institute of Health, well-being includes our physical, mental, social, and spiritual health. Maintaining each of these areas looks different from person to person. Like Rahaf, we have to find the courage to look at ourselves, defy our desire to blend in with the crowd of overworked employees, and address our unique needs. Once we discover what our personal success looks like, Rahaf has some tips for stepping into it. What I want to do now is open it up to questions. Hazel, do you have a question for Rahaf? Hello, I just wanted to say thank you for having this conversation. I'm one of the pers- one of the people that always says yes. Like the story, I was kind of on the edge of my seat literally because I felt like that's where I'm headed and it's not a good thing. And I just wanted to know what can you do in your youth as far as mental models and benchmarks to stop burnout? Hazel, that is a great question. My answer to you is that your calendar can become your protector if you know how to use it properly. 
when I go to plan my week, I kind of work on 90 day sprints. I work on quarterly goals and then I work backwards and sort of see the things that I need to get done. Every Sunday, I sort of sit, I look at the week ahead. And before I put a single task, I make sure to put the activities that I know are going to be important to my mental well-being. So my workout times, my self-care time, those things are non-negotiables for me. I put those things in first because I realized that so many people just put their meetings and obligations, what other people want them to do. And then they have what looks like open time on their calendar, but they give it away so easily. So after I put in my self-care time, I put in my writing time or the important things for the stuff that I need to get done. And then everything else kind of fits around that. No matter how unpredictable the week is, I know that I'm prioritizing the things that at the end of the day are going to get me to where I want to go. If you're anything like me, when I was around your age, It's that you feel like everything's important and everything's urgent. So you're constantly letting other people dictate your priorities, your energies, and your time. You have to start protecting that right off the bat. There's always going to be people that want things from you. There's always going to be opportunities coming your way. But if the price that you pay for doing all of those things is that you're burnt out and then you can't do any of them, like that's not a great outcome either. So I would just start by saying, what's three things that you know you really need to do in order for you to feel your best? Then I want you to like look at your calendar and give yourself at least an hour or 90 minutes of you time where you can work on the long-term planning, the projects, the thinking. Then you can get to everyone's demands on your time. I think that we live in an era where our technology has given us the illusion that everyone should be accessible and everybody should be reachable all the time. And that's not true. You should not be accessible all the time. You need to sort of take care of you first and then everything else will kind of flow from that. As simple as taking care of yourself might sound, it is definitely something that the modern workforce needs to take note of. Our culture glorifies the go-getter, the person who jumps at any and every opportunity to progress their career. And because of technology, these opportunities are now available 24-7. The idea that life should revolve around our job gets iterated in everything from rising grand coffee mugs to thank God it's Monday hashtags. And so going back to Rahaf, we've seen that just because someone works to the point of exhaustion does not mean that they're dedicated. Taking care of yourself so that you can maintain a long-term commitment to high-quality work, that's what does. Like Rahaf's untouchable self-care schedule, we need to make boundaries of steel to withstand the pressures of hustle culture. And after untangling herself from the belief system, Roth decided to dedicate time and research to what self-care should even look like. How did you realize like those were the priorities? Like, Was there a system that you went through to make your priorities known to you? The way I thought about it was like this, everything that I did before led me to being really burnt out and it wasn't working. And I couldn't keep doing any of those things if I wanted to live a healthy life. So what do I do? I had to like start experimenting with different approaches to do everything. And so it was a lot of trial and error. Some things I tried that didn't work. Some things I tried that really worked. For example, food prepping was something that I've recently been on. Um, I would do some of it before haphazardly, but like in the last, I'd say couple of months, I've started like really spending 90 minutes super strategically. And I can in 90 minutes now from beginning to end prep enough food for five lunches and five dinners for myself and my husband. But that one 90 minutes brought me so much value. I also know that if I take the time even just to do a 30 minute 
yoga class, like that my mood is so much better. My creativity is so much better. When I was sleeping properly and eating properly, it was reflected as I tracked everything in how much I could actually get done and how much I could write and how, and the quality of the work that I was producing. And that was the most counterintuitive thing, right? The most counterintuitive thing is that we think if I work 16 hours, it's going to be double an eight hour day. I'm doing twice the work, but that's not true. Hour 10, 11, 12, hour 16, you're not doing the same quality of work as hours, you know, one to four. And so what I started looking for was I didn't care what the system said. I looked at how was it impacting the work? And the less I did and the more strategic I was and the better I took care of myself, the more I was able to do in less time. Although burnout first appeared as an obstacle to her career growth, Rahaf transformed this struggle into an opportunity that skyrocketed her potential. Rather than succumbing to a system that was beating her down, she dug her heels in and built a system of her own. Like many of her founders, Rahaf is completely rebelling from outdated methods and trailblazing an entirely new way of doing things. Although she kind of completely defies this classic entrepreneur stereotype, the overextended nonstop worker, she fully embodies the ingenuity of the true entrepreneurial spirit. Following her example, we can all apply this ingenuity to our own lives. Ignoring any judgment we may fear and examining our own individual needs, we too can invent a lifestyle uniquely suited to our sense of joy and success. What your work should do and what it should be is it should be a vehicle by which you explore the world. And I think that's what I love about finding founders and this amazing team we've built is we kind of are in this like big bus together, driving around the world and saying like, let's do a series on Puerto Rico. Let's do a series on chefs. Let's do a series in, well, little hint, we're doing a series in Mexico on avocados and the cartel. It's not about rising and grinding. It's about just exploring the world. And I feel like rise and grind or phrases like that are saying, hey, Your work sucks. It's really hard, but you have to get through it anyway. You have to go against the grain and like really just throw yourself into pain. But it doesn't have to be pain. It just has to be a thing by which you explore the world. Identify what you like doing and what you want to understand about the world and then build a vehicle through either your job that you have right now or entrepreneurship to allow you to explore those interests. And I think as many people like us start to recover from the rampant burnout caused by COVID-19 and prepare to go back to the office or work or whatever that looks like, it seems like it's the perfect time to follow Rahaf's lead and redefine our work-life balance. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereaux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez, Tomas Renteria, Nathan Tower, Callum Turnbull, Lauren Yamada, and Maura Lynch. Our outreach and research lead is Ankita Nambiar, with support from Miriam Arden, Sarah Hobson, Lisa Lett, Kenny Ong, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, and Marie Vaughn. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Natalie Agnew, Abigail Azardia, 
Elise Caldwell, Harrison Duffy, Alexandra Huntalis Adams, Kylie McCreary, Beatrice Phillips, and Virna Seminario. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Anna Rivelli, and Allison Wong. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Linda Tapia. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.